If you want to help people and animals, you got to be there to be able to do it. And so if you get sick or you get hurt and you can't work, you're no good to your patients, you're no good to your family, you're no good to anybody like that. You're, you know, you're a drain on us. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. Mr. Phil Siebert, we are so, so super excited to have you as a guest on our show today. David and I are just totally geeking out knowing that you're here. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. As I was uh, mentioning a little while ago um, for stuff, this is actually the first podcast that I'm doing, and so I'm really excited that I'm doing it with y'all. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We are excited to have you here. And although David and I know you and know who you are and what you do, can you please, uh, without having to read your bio, can you tell me about yourself and what got you to where you are today? Sure. So um, I guess I am... um, you know, the product of uh, an early childhood that has been, as we all are, infatuated with animals. I wanted to be a veterinarian early in my career or early in my life, and we didn't have any money for me to go to school. So I thought the best way to do that was to go, uh, was to join the Army and uh, have them pay for college. So I did that in my right out of high school and was an animal care specialist in the Army for uh, almost 11 years. Oh, wow. Well, I never got past the uh, the tech, and that's the equivalent of a technician, if you will. Um, so I, I never really got past that to the vet school thing because I found out as I got into the profession that actually I didn't want to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a veterinary nurse. I wanted to do the hands-on, yeah. um, the fun part. you know, the care, <laughs> the comfort stuff, the, yeah. the, the do that. And that's what the technicians do, not the doctors. So, you know, I kind of switched gears a little bit with that. So after I got out of the Army, um, I went to work for, um, well, let me back up. While I was in the Army, I did a lot of jobs as a technician, but also did a lot of jobs in um, as what we would call a manager today. The biggest one that I had or the most, I guess, challenging one was uh, when I was stationed in Europe, in Germany, back in the 1980s, uh, we had a new model that we are using today in veterinary medicine, but it was a uh, a, a brand new concept back then, but it was a central emerg- a central referral hospital with satellite clinics that referred back to the main hospital. And we had a central hospital in Germany that we had n- nine satellite clinics on all of Europe that we wow, referred back huge. to us and stuff. Yeah. So I ran that clinic for uh, a few years and, you know, it had its challenges and stuff. After uh, getting out of the Army, I, I joined um, the uh, American Animal Hospital Association 
as one of the, the inspectors, they call them practice consultants, that go around the country and inspect hospitals for their accreditation program. And matter of fact, I was the first technician uh, to ever do that job for them. And I'm proud to say I must have did an okay job because now that's all they have <laughs> as technicians yeah. doing that job. Yeah. So that was a pretty eye-opening experience in our profession, getting to see uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,800 different practices in a short period of time like that was an education that you can't buy. You just can't, oh, you bet. know, you can't do that. Yeah. So yeah. from there, um, around that time is when all this OSHA stuff first started hitting our profession. We had this MSDSs in those days, you know, the, the big thing in the early 90s for all of that and stuff. So as I was doing the evaluations for the hospital, uh, for AHA, the hospital managers and stuff would always, you know, say, well, what, what is it with this OSHA stuff? Now, having been in the military, I, I, I know how to read a regulation. And, and so I spent a little time doing some research and, and looking into things and kind of figuring stuff out to be able to give people advice. And the next thing you know, I'm doing that full time. I'm in business. Yeah. And so since, uh, since the mid-90s, I've uh, uh, been doing this consulting stuff pretty exclusively. I've worked with hospitals all over the country in every state in uh, the United States. Um, done a couple of stints up in Canada. Um, their rules are pretty similar to ours when it comes to these kind of things and stuff. But the, uh, the whole regulatory compliance thing, OSHA, DEA, you know, those kind of things and stuff, that's just all of a sudden it fell into your lap and you, you know, you just had to do it. Yeah, you just run with that's it. That's awesome. Yeah. I have to uh, give a shout out to safetyvet.com, Phil's site, Phil's company. Uh, you have saved my butt more than once. I think I have that's all of right. your books. Um, he's got a new controlled drug book out for all you that are going, you know, do I lock this up? What do I do with this? Can we, what is it? Can we hub this? Can we waste that? Uh, so he's got great, great stuff on his site. There's all, there's a bunch of freebies. There's great newsletters. Um, he's, I think you're the only one that's printed veterinary specific secondary container the labels. labels. I mean, the amazing. site is amazing. So, yes. uh, so shout out to your company, Phil. Great. Thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. We, uh, we try to make, uh, you know, when I'm putting stuff out there, I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for folks to do what they need to do. Um, you know, so, you know, I look, look at it as this way. What would I want if I were the running the practice right now? You know, and that's kind of what drives it. Yeah, the easy button. Yeah, for sure. It, really? Yeah. If you could share with us a favorite class or book, a CE conference, something that really had an impact on you, um, maybe shaped your career or something that's just your go-to for today um, or maybe even something you just read yesterday. Could you share something with us? You know, that that's a little thought-provoking with stuff. Um, you know, there's been a lot of things that have, a lot of things and a lot of people that have uh, contributed to who I am. But I tell you, if I had to put my hand or, you know, put my thing, finger on a specific event or, or thing, I oftentimes come back to a class that I was required to take while I was in the military, going through the Essex College program in, um, uh, in Maryland to become a, a certified technician. But one of the classes they required us to take was a veterinary ethics class. And to be honest, I had never given a second thought to that, uh, that whole topic mm -hmm. in all of my life. 
it had been one of those you either do the right thing or you do what you're told, you know, and all of that other yeah. kind of stuff. I, I tell you, that class, even th- to this day, th- you know, 40 years later, there are still times I think back to that class and think about how it opened my eyes to that my way might not be the only way. And the But the biggest takeaway I got from that stuff was do the right thing, you know, do the right thing and it'll be okay kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a comfort thing. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. some people call that religion. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's uh, that kind of thing. Hmm. But I absolutely, 40 years later, still have little snippets of memories of that particular class of all of them. You know? hmm. That's Weird. awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. There are some that just stick with you. It's for sure. Yeah. So there's, uh, as you know, and we talk about, and Andrea and I talk about, there's so many opportunities in veterinary medicine for, for anybody, but especially for, for technicians. So there's clinical, there's, you know, anesthesia, CPR, you know, central lines, dentistry, nutrition, da, 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 da. As a manager, you know, there's CBPM and there's, you know, inventory management, HR, financial, and then there's OSHA. <laughs> there's <Yeah>. safety regulatory. <laughs> Phil, how the heck did you get into this niche? And you know what's interesting, I must say, because you definitely have a, I would assume, a special love for it, but also a special kind of, and no offense meant, but wiring, because you don't see that many other people who are kind of jumping into your footsteps. And so what is it about OSHA that's tough to get through? You know, how did you get into this area? And, and why do you just keep keep on, uh, you know, loving it and spreading the gospel to us? And uh, we certainly are very appreciative for you breaking down these thousand page regs and stuff. So, so tell us about how you got into OSHA and, and, and all things veterinary safety. Well, it started, you know, when I was in when I was doing the AHA evaluations, it started there with uh, with a desire to provide answers. I've always been the kind of person who wants to, first of all, know things and second of all, to be able to share that knowledge. And so I think if I wouldn't be in the world I'm in now, I think I probably would have pursued a, a path in teaching of some kind because I absolutely enjoy, you know, the sharing the knowledge and, and that kind of stuff. So the OSHA thing came about mostly because of the universe abhors a vacuum. And, you know, at the time, we didn't have anything. We didn't have anybody trying to teach us. We had uh, all of these rules that were coming down on us in the early 90s. Now, I'll give you a little history of that here in a minute. But, you know, we had all these rules starting. And the only advice we had was coming from people who had worked in the chemical industry all their lives. You know, AHA hired this group that to try and help put together a compliance uh, package and stuff. And the end result read like I was working at Dow Chemical or something. And it just didn't fit us. It started off with me just trying to find something practical because I want our profession to do the right thing, but then I don't want us to do things we don't have to do. Well, from there, I'll tell you where it really flourished. It was probably about five or six years into doing the whole, well, you need to do this because OSHA says you need to do this spiel, that I started noticing a change in me. And the change came because as I became more knowledgeable about the things that were happening to other people in our profession that didn't happen to me, it became more of a, well, you know what, I need to, we need to do these things because it is a problem. It is something that can, can hurt us. And, you know, nobody wants to be hurt. And we have a thing in our profession where we will always put our patients first and foremost and above everything else. Well, that's a great tagline and stuff. But folks oftentimes forget that 
you know, in order to help somebody else, you have to help yourself first. It's like the, the little spiel on the airplane. If the right. mask deploy, put right. your mask on first, you know. So if you want to help patients, if you want to help people and animals, you got to be there to be able to do it. And so if you get sick or you get hurt and you can't work, you're no good to your patients. You're no good to your family. You're no good to anybody like that. You're, you know, you're a drain on us kind of deal. About five years into it, my attitude changed from more of a do this because the requirements say to do it uh, perspective to a do this because this is really what we need to do so that we can continue to do the things we do all the time for a long period of time. So I think that's probably what drives me uh, to keep going in this stuff because God knows it gets complicated and, and every day yes, it seems like, not different. so much on the OSHA side today, but on, on just regulations in general, you know, expectations change every day. Our body of knowledge changes on things as well. There's a lot of procedures that we do, that we did when I was a young technician that we wouldn't dream of yeah, doing today. Yeah, right, not even close, yeah. So that whole focus or the thing that, that makes me keep going that I really enjoy about this is the ability to pass on to, uh, to the next generation of folks who uh, they just they've not lived it yet. So the sharing of experience, I call it my old man syndrome. Every old man you talk to wants to give you the wisdom of the ages. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Pass it down. I don't know what it is, Folklore. but I'm there. I <laughs> oh, love it, love it. And Phil, there are so many things going on as a practice manager. There's so many balls in the air. There are so many things that we're juggling. Like, you know, David said there's HR and there's technicians and, you know, I mean, everything that's going on in a practice, it's, it's, it's too much for one manager to handle. And so I feel like OSHA is one of those things that's like, it's always on the back burner. And honestly, like for the most part, my practice is safe. For the most part, you know, we don't plug in extension cords into a bad outlet or, you know, we're not putting a blow dryer in water after we're done, you know, drying the slide. <laughs> right, right. For the most part, we're fairly safe. And quite honestly, like that doesn't come to the top of the triage list for me. Like there's no inspector that's going to beat down my door that's saying, hey, you know, your 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 practice is, is completely unsafe or epic failure, don't you know? My team's awesome. Like I know that the complaints can spark an OSHA inspection and my team's awesome. No one's ever gonna complain. We all love each other. Come on, does OSHA really matter? Like, aren't we safe enough? Like, tell me a little bit about why OSHA compliance really matters all that much. Well, you know, everything you said is right uh, about things. There are uh, more pressing uh, items on uh, the top on the agenda every day. You know, you're putting out the fires that are closest to you at the time is kind of the uh, life of a manager. Uh, at least it was. And not the literal that fires, kind of right? Because that's definitely Correct. OSHA concern. <laughs> Correct. There's probably three reasons why practices should take safety seriously. Now, I'm not, uh, notice I didn't say OSHA compliance. I think that OSHA compliance is the result of you doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah, there's going to be some mm -hmm. I's to dot and some T's to cross and stuff Good like point. that. But I think what we need to do is go into this with a different perspective than I'm doing this because the government says I'm going to do that. So there are three, I think, uh, important reasons to make safety an integral part of your operation. And I think that's the major mm -hmm. answer to compliance mm -hmm. is it should not be a separate program. It should be a little piece of every single procedure that we do should have a safety component to it. 
Yeah. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, exactly. The three perspectives that I usually come from when I say, when I look at things or when I have discussions about folks is, of course, we want to be compliant with the government. Nobody, I mean, yeah, there's some kooks out there, but for the most part, nobody wants to intentionally pick a fight with uh, some government agency that <laughs> right. has authority over us, right? right? No thanks. So we want to we want to stay out of trouble. The second is the concern for the staff member, and I think that's really the one that needs to drive most of us is we want to do these things because they're right. And believe it or not, not listen, the government has a long track history of making simple things complicated. Mm-hmm. They have a long track history of going down the wrong path and not realizing it for t- 30 years, you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, all the regulations that we have to follow are rooted in a problem that existed. Mm-hmm. You know, before OSHA came into a B in the 1970s, American workers had pretty much were there on their own. Businesses could do whatever they want to, and we had to sweat shops. Literally, yeah, people would right. die right. doing right. their job, right. yes. and the boss, all they had to do was kick the body out of the way to bring the new mm-hmm. one in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's definitely some benefit to the oversight part of things, Mm -hmm. but all the rules that we have to abide by are rooted in keeping people safe and not not putting Mm -hmm. an unnecessary risk on doing your job. Mm -hmm. And then the third perspective, and I'm very angry, disappointed, woeful uh, that we even have to talk about this, but liability from lawsuits are becoming a major issue in the veterinary Mm -hmm. field. For many, many, many years, we never even thought about um, malpractice or liability. Sure, we had our problems. I'm not saying we didn't. We We live in a time now where if you turn on a television in the middle of the day, every single commercial is a Mm -hmm. lawyer Mm -hmm. trying to drum up business. And we've gone from the accident ambulance chasing messages to others. We have um, in Texas not too long ago when I was there uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on television, there was a ad from the a lawyer that said, you know, have you been exposed to hazardous drugs in your career and now mm-hmm. you have medical problems? You mm-hmm. may be entitled to compensation. And while they're saying yeah. this, there's a whole list of jobs rolling across the screen. Uh, have you worked in any of these medical fields? And of course, veterinarian, veterinary technician, animal care, yeah. and all of that right stuff that was list. on the list. Sure. Yeah, you better believe yep. it. So, yeah. uh, you know, we're starting to see that thing. We had a case in uh, Tennessee a couple of years ago where a client. Uh, sued the practice because she thought or she claimed that she had a stroke as a result of them sending home compounded eye medication for their dog. It it was bogus. It was Mm -hmm. totally bogus. The the hospital got some tacrolimus eye drops or ointment uh, compounded at a a pharmacy, a, a veterinary pharmacy, and they got, you know, 10, 12 tubes of it. And uh, kept it on the shelf, and everybody that needed it, they gave it to the client as the dogs came in. You can't do that. Mm, the right. compounding stuff, you cannot redispense compounding medicine. Right. Now, I'm not sure, I can't find, I should say, any information anywhere that says, caution, do not uh, get exposed to tacrolimus uh, eye ointment or eye drops, or you'll have a stroke. But right. the lady right. hired a lawyer, and they'll mm-hmm. sue anybody. Yes. Yeah. And right. the insurance company, this is the thing that they've been doing, mm-hmm. the insurance company said, it's going to cost us more to fight this, so we're just going to settle it. So they paid the lady almost yeah. $20,000 Wow! in that case. And since then, that lawyer has filed more lawsuits against veterinarians for... Oh. 
illegally dispensing compounded medicine. Mm -hmm. And so nobody's gotten hurt, but because we broke a rule, we're paying paying for it. Yeah, and we're right, paying, and who's right. paying those insurance premiums? Right, you know? right, right, right. Oh man. So yeah, it's a shame, but up. that's a big. It's an up and coming thing. Uh, so I, that's the three hmm. perspectives that I think are important. Yeah. When we're discussing doing it right, and mm. when we say doing it right, what I mean by that is we need to balance the needs of the patient with the needs of the practice, you know, Mm -hmm. productivity and different stuff like that. But we also need to factor in there a third balancing point. It's a three-pronged balancing act, and that is we gotta protect ourselves. We gotta Mm -hmm. make sure that we are doing the right thing for our patient, Mm -hmm. we're doing the right thing for the practice, and we're doing the right thing for ourselves. Right. Uh, when yeah, we're doing no, these, pra- not these yeah. procedures. Not that particular order, too, right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, For you know, sure. I like to tell folks it's like a uh, a little wobbly thing where you've got a, a pivot in the center and you got a little marble on three points of the thing and they move around. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you got to constantly yeah. adjust to keep it in balance. Right. I like that. Uh, I like how you reframed a little bit of the kind of doom and gloom, but kind of the, the ugh, you know, about OSHA in, you know, one of my favorite phrases is assume noble intent. And so, you know, if you say, do we want to have a workplace that is that keeps our employees safe in and amongst hazardous stuff, right? Radiation and drugs right. and things. And you say, yes, right. then OSHA's the path, right? You just have to work right. through those regulations. And OSHA's, I like to assume that they're not out to get the small business, but what their focus is to say, hey, that's a hazard. Let's do the science and the research. And this is how you protect them from it. It could be burdensome, you know, all the different things we have to know, but that's you know, that's kind of it. And, you know, we deal with a lot of hazards. We, we you know, we can be, we can call ourselves a somewhat high hazard industry, but my God, we're not the most. I mean, if, if think about, I mean, it's also kind of taking those blinders off, right? Like mining or outdoor sure. Sure. work. Like, can you imagine right. what right. the mining OSHA inspection was? I mean, it's crazy. So we have to remember that, you know, we operate in a lane and we have an industrial code and, and you know, a, you know, a job code and we follow the regulations that kind of align with right. that. And so, you know, as you do so well, you break it down. It's a lot, but it's not insurmountable. So I, I liked how you reframed that. Well, I, you know, and I, I think you hit on a good point there is that what we need to do is think of these rules and regulations as guidelines uh, for things. You know, we in medicine yes. rely on the uh, CDC and, and NIOSH and uh, universities and research studies. And we rely on folks to come up with this knowledge and then tell us about it. And, you know, we, for the most part, adopt that knowledge. We, we go with it because when we find find out it was a problem in other cases. We don't have to repeat those errors to avoid those errors. And so I think we should look at these regulations. I, you know, I get it mm-hmm. for a lot of the, the, it. sometimes they don't always fit well. That's what we need to do is look at them right. as guidelines to say, we're doing this to prevent problems that have happened mm-hmm. uh, before. Right, they have yeah. a guideline yeah. there because of the past, right? So there's right. a reason right. why it's right. there. And if we don't yeah. want to do the past over and over again, then follow the guideline, even if it yeah. is a pain point in the practice. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, David, you mentioned the uh, inspection side. Let's go there for a minute. uh, Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's afraid of the inspection. And you're right that the overwhelming majority of inspections of hospitals occur as a result of a complaint. Listen, nobody can predict the future. You know, Andrea, I know that you'd love to have as a manager the crystal ball that you can hold over a new employee's head and it'll turn different (laughs) colors and become the employee from hell later. Right, right. right. We don't have that. 
So we don't mm-hmm. know. Just because everybody loves everybody now doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. Down the line, So, sure. you know, best approach then is to treat people right. Um, make sure we're doing the best that we can for our staff so that we can keep them safe but com- still complete our mission. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I find that the, uh, the complaint to OSHA problem is usually not the employee trying to improve the workplace. That does happen. But, you know, 90 plus percent of the time, the complaint mm-hmm. is of it's uh, somebody who yes. got mad about yes. something and, right. you know, they get miffed. And here's the big thing that I see. Usually the people who, com- they, uh, when they complain, they complain about the things of which they know. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we let employees get away with stuff that we know we shouldn't and it'll come back to bite you later. Let me give you a story, an example of that. Mm-hmm. So I worked with a practice in Wisconsin that called me and said, look, I'm getting inspected by OSHA. The inspector just left and a whole bunch of stuff and blah, blah, blah. So I wind up, I had some time. He, he wanted to. I got on an airplane, went up there. We worked with him and when we got the report, there was five citations on the report and although the employer does not know you're not entitled to know the name of the complainant that rubs me a little bit raw but I understand why it's that way for you know keeping people to retaliate against from retaliating against employees for making these complaints and different stuff but you're not entitled to know but it's certainly not hard to figure out right our practices are small that's right yeah so my first advice is if you get inspected don't speculate and don't openly speculate on who complained and that stuff because oftentimes that person if they're still not in the practice they still have friends in the practice mm, and so true. you could make true, it true, worse or by speculating on who it might be you know and all of that mm-hmm. other kind of stuff let it go it doesn't matter right. address the issues so back to the story about the Wisconsin practice this technician she had been with the practice for a little over eight years the practice was only about nine years old she was she was one of the first employees they had uh, very soon after they opened she was the senior technician she worked uh, everything was fine worked closely with the veterinarian it was a small practice he had two veterinarians and I don't know 10 or 12 staff members and everything was great until she went through a divorce and all of a sudden her look on everything changed her performance went down at work and all men are now pigs all right and that was kind of the way it progressed so when they tried to address her uh, shortcoming in uh, the work area she blamed it on uh, sexism and they're only doing this at me because I'm a woman and all this other stuff. And she ultimately quit. Well, she filed a complaint with every agency she could find, including OSHA, and that's where I came in. There were five parts to her complaint. Four of the five were stupid stuff, like we didn't have the right poster on the wall. Sure we did. It was there. We took a picture of it. The inspector saw it. It was done. But the fifth one was the one that caused the problem. And the fifth complaint was, and this is an exact quote. I have it memorized. He, and he refers to the veterinarian, okay, Mm -hmm. quote, he didn't make us wear gloves when we restrained animals for radiographs, end quote. So the complaint itself leads you to believe that the person knew they were supposed to. But the complaint Right, because they say gloves (laughs) for x-rays, so they have an idea of what they were saying. Yep, that's right. But, and so the veterinarian's defense was, I told them to, I bought the gloves, they're back there with them. All of that stuff. Uh Well, what happened was, the inspectors goes around and starts talking to other staff members and says, um, you know, has anyone ever been been reprimanded because for failure to follow safety instruction and in most practices nobody can provide that because they don't do Mm -hmm. it right 
They don't do it. So the next thing was, the, the so they asked that question. The next thing, the inspector went around and talked to other people and said, so when you're taking these x-rays, you know, they use x-rays. They don't say radiographs. They use the term x-rays. So when you're taking these x-rays of these animals and stuff, what do you wear? And the employees are going to be honest, and they're going to tell them, I wear a gown. And I put, oh, but I put my badge on, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. Right. So what about gloves? Well, we don't always wear gloves because they're cumbersome and blah, blah, blah. You've heard the stories. And yeah. so the next question is, so does the veterinarian know that you take those without gloves? And the employees are not going to lie. They're going to say, well, probably. I mean, there's sometimes he's seen us and everything. Okay, now all of a sudden... That became a willful violation in the eyes of the inspector. Ooh, that's a bad one. Oh, man. It was the bad one. It was. Yeah. And the inspector, I believe, the inspector was a relatively new person in the field because he definitely he had to go back to his boss and consult with his boss on a number of issues before they issued citations and did all the other stuff. And I really, from the, the flavor of everything, I got the impression that he was trying to make a good impression with his boss and was looking for that, and that was the one. So end result mm-hmm. was, the veterinarian was char- was was cited for. Uh, they dismissed the other four. They, that one's the one that they stuck with. They um, uh, cited him for a willful violation. He, he paid like a five thousand dollar fine in the end after the appeals and stuff. Now wow. nobody wants to pay any amount of money. No. Yeah. But yeah, you know these right. fines can be in the twenty, thirty, forty thousand yeah, dollar range thousands. if oh, yeah. if you Jeez. want to and stuff. Yeah. Now. So uh, there's two morals to the story there. The first one is that when you know employees are doing the wrong thing, you need to take action. You need to make them do the right thing. You need to make them figure it out. And, you know, when it comes to, like, the radiograph and glove issue, my favorite saying to folks is, how do you get good at something? You do it over and over and over. And uh, you'll never you'll never get good at something if you never do it. Yeah, all right? you got to practice so, it. So you got to practice it. you got to get good at it. You know, that's all there is to it. The second moral of the story is that... That you need to assume that you are um, potentially going to run into a problem that you didn't cause, but that you become uh, involved in. Nobody caused this technician to get a divorce from her husband. Nobody called her. Nobody caused her. Nobody in the practice, I should say. And nobody in the practice caused her to feel the way she felt uh, about life. And th- that's a traumatic part in, in people's lives mm-hmm. uh, event. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, even though you're doing the best you can and we're all getting along outside forces will wreck that you got to operate from a position of doing the right thing all the time because you can't put that back in the bottle once it's out yeah very true very true so you know for some of the listeners that you know may may or may not be super familiar with osha uh, believe me, Phil, I know you can do probably two days of eight hours each on <laughs> yeah, OSHA. Yeah, um, it could be. It, you would just uh, riff with us a little bit about, you know, n- not thinking about the microscopic view, but thinking about the macroscopic view. So you've got this illness injury prevention thing. You've got these SDS things. You've got these labels that go on bottles. Could you just kind of just riff and chat through kind of the super macro picture of what OSHA or safety program uh, needs to include. And then at least our sure. managers can mentally check, oh, I've got that thing on the shelf. Oh, the SDS thing is super dusty, but it's there. You know, like a couple of the big high right. points right. Um, right. to frame the next part of our of our chat. Way to approach this with OSHA, and, and a big picture is a good analogy to use, is I tell folks to approach every single one of these discussions about hospital safety and OSHA compliance in the very same way that you would approach a medical case with a new patient. So when I, get, when I have a new patient walk into the uh, uh, hospital, 
hospital and I put them in the exam room, the very first thing I'm going to I'm doing is I'm familiarizing myself, I'm gathering information and familiarizing myself with the patient and the the client and you know all of that other kind of stuff. Then the next thing I do is a physical exam because uh, listen, sometimes clients don't uh, aren't the most observant uh, about things and sometimes their history doesn't give you what you need in an objective manner, you know that kind of stuff. So you got to see it with your own eyes and then from there you formulate a strategy you may do some testing uh, to, for things but you come up with a hypothesis we call that a differential diagnosis and then you come up with a plan a treatment plan and you implement it well that's exactly how you approach the OSHA perspective is the first thing you do is talk to people you find out if they have concerns and take notes. The second thing you do is a physical exam. You go around and you look for problems and things that could be uh, harmful to folks. Then you come up with some plans, some written plans, and then you teach everybody to follow the plan. So what are the plans? What are some of the kind of plans that we have? Well, of course, you've got things such as a fire safety plan. You've got things like just anesthesia safety, radiology safety, um, you know, hazard chemicals and all of that other kind of uh, uh, associated things going with that one, the different types of chemicals and stuff. Uh, you've got a security and violence prevention issue that you have to address. So you need a plan for that. You're not going to do all of that in one shot. So the best advice I have for you is to do that physical exam and talk to folks, come up with a list of problems, and then do exactly what we do in a, in a healthcare setting is we triage and we take the most important or the most critical first and we deal with them first. So we develop a plan and typically our plans uh, have three parts to them. And the plan should always identify what the risks are or what the hazard is or what the problem is. The second part of a, any plan is the instruction to the employees. Do this, but don't do that. Always do this. Never do that. Do this, do that, don't do that. And then the third part is some sort of mechanism that we're going to use to identify the mechanism we're going to use to make sure we continue to do this right in our practice. It could be naming an individual person who's in charge of making sure we're doing it that way. It could be something like, um, you know, we're periodically going to do this test or redo this checklist or something, but how are we going to make sure we continue to do this the right way. So there's a whole bunch of, of those topics and I want to just, you know, I'll probably take five minutes or a little bit less here, but let me kind of go through some of them and give you the highlights of what we should have. So I'm going to start with that that fire plan. You know, you got to make sure that you've got fire extinguishers and that you've checked them recently and you do it regularly. You got to make sure that you've got the emergency exits are unobstructed. That's a big, big deal. I see folks all the time. Nobody has more space than they need. Everybody has more stuff than they have place to put stuff, uh, even in brand new buildings. So we wind up storing things where they don't belong. I see people store things on stairways. That's not a good thing. You shouldn't do that. One of the most common ones I see, especially in emergency hospitals, is we like to have these rolling gurneys to move patients around instead of carrying them. That's a good thing, but there's not a lot of places to put them, so they wind up getting parked in the hallway, and so now we're restricting the exit hallway because we've got gurneys and equipment and stuff parked in front of that. Another big issue on the fire side, open flames, candles. You know, this whole fad we got now of burning candles in the clinic. I don't know. I mean, I don't know where it came from. I get it. I think I get it on the, this candle is lit because we're, you know, somebody's doing the euthanasia in the back and open flames in the building, even candles and stuff, not a good idea at all. So 
that's kind of the way you want to address the fire plan. Uh, another one on the, uh, the hazardous chemicals. That one's been around forever. That one was one of the first ones OSHA had. We call it HAZCOM or Hazard Communication. It's also known as the Right to Know Law. And most folks will agree with this requirement, this regulation, if it's explained right. For example, the Right to Know Law says that if you're an employee working at a business and your employer is exposing you to hazardous chemicals, you have a right to know that. Duh! We can't disagree with that. Well, how are we going to have a right to know that? Well, you have a right to know what the chemical is. You have a right to know the details of that. Hey, where does that come? That's all of that safety data sheet. So that's the whole point of those safety data sheets is to give the employee the opportunity to um, be knowledgeable about what they may be exposed to. So another tenant of the HASCOM uh, thing is labels. You know, it makes sense when you think about this that says, hey, if I've got a product in a bottle that is dangerous, and it could be dangerous because it can cause a health problem to people, it could also be dangerous because of a physical property. For example, it could be flammable or something like that. Well, if I've got one of those products in a bottle, geez, it makes a lot of sense to make sure that they, we put a label on that bottle so everybody knows what's in it. We should not have the scenario where people have to go around and sniff the bottle to see if they can yeah, tell to what's in it. figure out what it is, right. And we do it. It's been done. I get it. You know, all that stuff. So that's the whole uh, premise behind labels. Now, of course, there's some nuances on all of this stuff. But those are the two big things when it comes to the hazard communication issue is the uh, SDSs and labels. And then finally, an up-and-coming issue is um, eyewashes. We're starting to see um, more attention being paid in the regulatory side of things to availability of eyewashes everywhere. So there, when, this, when this first started hitting us back in the 90s, you know, they were happy if we had labels and SDSs and they really didn't go any further. But that's not the way it is anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking at full compliance with all this stuff. Wow. So one of the requirements is that we have an eyewash station or some sort of device readily available. The rule is within 10 seconds of where you need it, where you don't have to go up or down stairs and a whole bunch of other stuff, um, that kind of thing. And here's another important one. I just ran into this one a couple of weeks ago. You know, you really shouldn't put the eyewash station, Those we like those little faucet-mounted devices. Those are fine for most places uh, for things, but you really shouldn't put it on the bathroom sink. You know, when I, <laughs> when I need that. Sorry, the door's going to be yeah. locked. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. You know it. And you listen, oh, I man. live in the south. I live down here. Listen, when it's going to be, Bubba's going to be in there, and Bubba spends a lot of time in the bathroom. <laughs> And, right. you know, I could just see me burning my eyes and banging right. on the door. Hey, Bubba, Bubba, <laughs> cut it short. Bubba, I need the thing. I'll be a minute. You know, come on. Come on. So, you know, we don't want to limit that kind of access. So there's a whole bunch of these. And we can, like I said, we can go on for hours and stuff. But I think the biggest issue or the biggest thing, advice I could have is, to do a, a physical exam and look for the hazards, and most of us can name them, and I'll quickly go through a bunch. Fire safety and prevention, security and violence prevention, and I do want to spend a minute on that if we get a chance here in a few minutes. Security and violence prevention issues, accident reporting. What are you going to tell people? First aid kits, you know, uh, having availability of those kind of things. What do you tell people to do if they injured in the hospital? And, uh, then you've got the electricity issue, using extension cords and power strip. You've got general walking, general working surfaces. You can't have slipping, slip hazards and trip hazards and all of that other. Then we got the medical issues. We've got animal handling is a big one. 
you need to have a safety plan for animal handling. This isn't something that's instinctive to people. They have to be trained on how to do that properly. You've got anesthesia issues. You've got radiology issues. If you're a, um, a large practice or a specialty practice, if you're doing oncology, you've got you know, chemo issues, chemo and, and dangerous drugs in general the type of issue. So all of those are kind of topics that the manager needs to have on their radar when they're developing their, their safety program. You mentioned earlier, Phil, well, actually I did when you said, you, you know, an easy button and you mentioned you try to want to have things as easy as, as possible for, for practice managers. So I'm just going to ask here, do you have an easy button on your website that has some type of checklist or build out that says this should be the infrastructure? Like, do you have these following sure. plans included in your IIPP or your yeah, safety plans sure. or whatever? The first book that I ever wrote was the Complete Veterinary Practice Regulatory Compliance Manual. It's a mouthful, but it's actually the part of a series. You know, the Complete Veterinary Practice is a series that I started. The first one was the Regulatory Compliance Manual. In that manual, there's uh, several appendices. The, the first thing in one of the appendices is that checklist that says, you know, it's got you know, 14, 15 pages long. It's got every section that goes through every single thing. And then the second appendices are the, the fill-in-the-blank, the templates for all of those plans that you're going to be expected to have. Now, you're going to have to take those things just like any other template. Nothing is going to fit perfect right off the shelf, but you, it's something to start. You don't have to reinvent the wheel in order to, to, uh, to get started with that. So that's the best advice I have on that one is to, uh, you know, look at the regulatory manual because, yeah, it's got all of that stuff in it. Yeah, and that's the easy button. Well, as easy it can be, right? The easy button that we need to be able to say, here's a tool, fill it out, utilize it. And so we're integrating safety compliance in our practices. And it, it's not something that's done overnight. It's not that easy. We're right. doing it all by yourself. But there is there is a component to that that says, hey, here's our checklist. We're trying to be safe and we're trying to make sure that we're compliant within the practice. So let me let me give you this little uh, hint. When it comes to preventing injuries, um, I think anything that we do is going to help. Uh, just the fact that we raise awareness of an issue is going to be a, right. a benefit. So I think that is taken care of, or that perspective is taken care of by us just dealing with this, the, the, uh, the topic. When it comes to the regulatory compliance, I can tell you nobody's perfect. You are less likely to be judged for what you have than if you have nothing. The inspectors, you know, they're not going to look the other way. But at the same time, if, you know, you have this culture that says we're doing the right thing, we're, we're doing we, the best we've we got can. the written plans, yeah. we're trying to, you know, and when we are, when we are aware of something, we take action. Yeah, we whether try to it's, fix it. Yeah. We fix it or we discipline when we are aware of violation yeah. problems. That's an important part of it. So having a template to start with will make things easier and it will help you move along faster. Just bring some awareness. Right. Yeah, right. That's right. But don't get hung up. And, and this is the, the biggest advice I think I have for folks is don't get overwhelmed. It's that old, uh, that old adage that says, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. All right. I've never eaten elephant, but I get the analogy, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. so I love that you one. know, yeah. you don't take one topic. Don't get overwhelmed. People try and do too much too fast. So I'm a huge fan of what I call my annual safety program. 
And it's different than what a lot of people think about an annual safety program. They oftentimes think about an annual safety plan as once a year, we close down for a couple hours, we have an OSHA meeting, and we remind everybody about the safety stuff. We check off the box, you know, we maybe they'll take a little test, and then we move on. That's not my idea of an OSHA annual plan. My idea of is take all of the stuff that you would have covered in those two hours and divide it by 12 and cover those things every month. Slowly spoon-feed people stuff. Yes, you may wind up being non-compliant for a couple of months, six months or whatever on a particular topic. But Lee, how long have you been in business already? You've been non-compliant for years. Yeah, right. What difference does it make? <laughs> another another month is months. not going to change right. that. Right, right. You're no worse off tomorrow than you were yesterday. So I'm a big fan of the small bites. Take all of this and do a little bit at a time and don't get overwhelmed uh, with uh, with these these topics. So you know, start, start tomorrow. Baby steps. Um, yeah, for sure. Baby steps. Yep. So let's talk about t tomorrow then, right? If what are five common mistakes that you say we do all the time? Like if we go into the practice tomorrow and you're checking out my practice, give me one or two or five things that right. you just say, these are all mistakes that we make every day. Yep. So I think that uh, I'll start with the one I already mentioned is blocking fire exits. We start, we store stuff in the wrong places and it could be in front of a fire exit. It could be putting um, uh, flammable materials next to hot water heaters or clothes dryers and all of that stuff. You should never put things that'll burn next to things that'll start them burning. You know, those kind of... Right. Government. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we also, uh, along the storage line of things, we tend to put the stuff that we don't use very often on the top shelves. And that may be fine as long as it fit on the top shelf. I'm, 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 I'm constantly amazed at how many times you walk into treatment rooms and, and storage rooms and just stuff. And on top of cabinets and on shelves, there's old equipment and boxes that are hanging over. And, you know, it doesn't take much for it to fall. I mean... You know, David, you're in you're in shaky country over there. Yeah, in I was gonna say country. we're in California. It'll just fall right off that shelf. Oh yeah, <laughs> it'll and much. it does. <laughs> yeah, right. And it and you know, uh, I we believe it or not, we have earthquakes here in Tennessee. They're not they're like on the 3.0 scale, you know, and stuff. Over here in the uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, we have on average about six or seven earthquakes a year, measurable earthquakes in in that area. So sometimes we don't even feel them. But stuff jumps off of the shelf. So safe storage of materials is the number one thing I would say. Uh, the second most common problem I see with practices, electrical issues. We have more stuff to plug in than we have outlets to plug it into. So I had a technician one time tell me that she would vote for the best invention of the 20th century as would be in the surge strip, the power strip, because now I can plug <laughs> eight things into one. It doesn't work that way, because when you think about it, it's, it's so easy to overload those things. As a matter of fact, overloaded power strips are the number one cause of fires in veterinary hospitals in the United States. Wow. It's the, it is the number, uh, and electrical issues in general are the number one cause of structure fires in the country the um, in recent years and it overtook smoking and cigarettes as the cause about eight or nine years ago as the number one cause of fires and stuff you know plug things into the wall if you need an outlet get the electrician 
to install the outlet, move the equipment. If you got to use a surge protector, make sure it's really a surge protector because not all of those little strips are actually giving you any protection. Some of those little strips are nothing more than an extension cord with multiple outlets on the end of it. So if you think it's protecting your computer, it's not. Make sure you're using that when you need it. But you should never plug in things like space heaters or autoclaves or coffee pots or, you know, any of that other kind of stuff into those those surge strips, they cause problems, all right? Number three is probably safe needle handling. We, uh, because we don't deal with uh, AIDS or HIV or, you know, those types of, of bloodborne pathogen diseases that human medicine deals with, veterinary medicine is kind of cavalier. Uh, about needle handling and needle safety and stuff. And we have needle sticks all the time with folks that are just not not good. And, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm not going to get HIV from it and stuff. Yeah, but... There's the, all the, kinds um, of other critters you can get from it, though. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the drug that's in it. I right. worked for a veterinarian one time who, who was trying to put the cap back on a, a syringe after a euthanizing a horse and missed the cap and pricked the tip of his finger. It, it, got, it turned in, in, in infected. It turned gangrenous. He had a big ulcer right there. It took almost six months for that scar to heal in, 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 in from just a simple needle stick, wow. you know, kind of stuff. Oof. Yeah. So, you know, the remove the cap with your teeth thing. I know everybody's guilty at some point in time, but geez, what a terrible habit. I've seen folks think they removed the cap, removed the cap, didn't do it right away, forgot they removed the cap and stuck it back in their mouth thinking they were going to remove the cap again. Yep. You know, all, all sorts of stuff. Yep. So needle safety is probably, you know, the third one that I see pretty frequently and stuff. The fourth one is, um, I want to say, personal protective equipment. There's not a lot of it we need to do, but there are some times when we need to do the right thing. And I think the example of the radiographs, the gloves and radiographs is the one that comes to mind uh, more than anything else, is when when you need to wear protective equipment, by golly, wear it and make sure you learn how to do it well. If you're doing dentistries, man, all of that nasty in that dog and cat's mouth and stuff is going to come. You're intentionally aerosolizing that stuff in your face, you know. So wearing a mask and a pair of glasses are essential when you're doing those kind of things. So adhering to the personal protective equipment issue is probably the, the, the number four. And then five, I think, is going to be uh, lifting issues. The number two issue we have in our profession is back injuries. And most people in our profession uh, don't follow that old adage of lift with your legs, not your back. We bend over at the waist and pick things up. And when we look at statistics, we find that most of the people who do suffer a back injury in our profession are not lifting heavy dogs. Oh, wow. That's a myth. Mm-hmm. They're lifting 30 to 50 pounds pound dogs yeah because we get help for the big dogs that's right or you get down on the floor with them yeah you know and all that stuff it's the 30 to 50 pound dogs that cause us the problems and it's Mm. usually due to poor posture Mm. uh with that stuff Mm -hmm. so i think those are the five big Hmm. violations for lack of a better word not necessarily osha violation Mm -hmm. but safety violations uh Five things that I would look at if mm-hmm. I were working in the clinic tomorrow mm-hmm. to make myself do better. Perfect. Oh, wow. That's those are what about what gems are those, Phil? Thank you. Um, right. Love it. And it's funny you mentioned tomorrow because the, the one of the points of this podcast is really to kind of prep managers for that Monday. You know, we record these on Fridays. And so uh, we, we really do emphasize that, like, what can you do tomorrow to, uh, you know, to, to get in compliance? And so as I was listening to all of the all the good stuff, if you whittle it down to two things, one sounds like, and this is to the managers, write up your employees that don't follow safety protocols. Meaning, 
meaning yeah. meaning tell them they this is the rule they have to follow the rule and if they don't follow the rule there's documentation like that is going to save butts i would call that enforcing the rules yeah start to right. enforce start the rules. to enforce them you know there's yeah. a there's a process we're not going to beat them over the head with a hammer the first time yeah bring you know that stuff first yeah mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you got to let them know looking the other way and tolerance of violation is not going to be acceptable anymore mm-hmm. we're going to move past that and you're going to start i'm going to start metaphorically spanking you when we find you doing things wrong. Right? <laughs> right, right. And then number two sounds like, uh, you know, and, and, and it's a shameless plug, but go visit safetyvet.com and, <laughs> and take a look at some of the great stuff that's on there. Uh, but what well, would we want to do? Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. What would uh, be, uh, yeah, exactly. What would be one other thing you'd share in, in a 48-hour so, go do this tomorrow uh, message? So I, I would say if I'm starting off fresh, all right, or even if I'm just looking at what I already have, um, the first thing I would do is, you know, figure out where you are. Go dust off those old SDS binders. Go collect them. Go get whatever safety plans you have. Pull them all together in one spot and assess what you have already. So before you go building stuff, maybe it's easier to just resurrect Reuse what you have. something yeah. you've already you've already started. All right. So revisit something you've already done, but you kind of fell off the wagon on before you start something new. Phil, you have been in practices, like you said, all over the country. Well, and even in Canada and, and all over, all over, all over and, and many different facets. And so I would love, love, love for you to tell us a story, a real life, <laughs> like pug, you know, eyes popping yep, out of your head, yep, yep, palm yep. hit the forehead, chin hit the ground. You cannot make this shit up. This is for yep. real happen. Pinch me. Yep. Am I awake or am I dreaming? So please, you know, change the name to protect the innocence. Tell us your funniest right. you can't make this shit up story. So I have a lot of different ones, but I think my oh, favorite. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> my favorite that comes under the topic of you cannot be that stupid. Okay. So I tell you, I used to do the AHA inspections. I remember one time I was doing an inspection of a hospital and no lie, it was in New Jersey. All right. So I'll give that part away, but this happens everywhere. But this one hospital, we had an appointment. I don't know if it was, I can't remember. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was, I was going to be there. So I showed up and there's, it looked like the place was closed. There was no cars in the parking lot. There was nothing. The lights were off. So I, I got out of my car and got my little clipboard thing with me and I was walking up to the front door and it was locked. So I'm, I'm knocking on the door kind of thinking, well, I don't know what's going on. And then as you can probably tell in your biopics, I've been bald since I was 22 years old. Okay. Well, the next thing you know, I feel this immense pain on the top of my head and I'm, I'm just trying to like, what is that? And I'm jumping back and stuff. And I look up and there's a huge wasp nest right above the front door of this clinic. And they're angry. They're mad at me. They're mad at me. They're stung me in the head. I look like a Klingon from Star Trek with the bumps on my head kind of thing. (laughs) Oh, no. About that time, the veterinarian comes around from the side of the building and says, come here, come this way. Don't go there. There's a bee nest. And I said, no, (laughs) lie, you know. And she literally said, well, it's been there a while and I'm allergic to bees, so I can't do nothing. But most of my clients know to come around the side anyway. (gasps) Oh, my God. Really? Oh, Oh, my God. Really? Wow. Just, so just I said, you know, right you ever thought hazard. about, Jeez. you know, have you ever thought about hiring somebody that, right. well, yeah. you get people for that. 
Yeah. The inspection went downhill from there. I mean, to the point of, and, and I'll, I'll finish this up. I will tell you that I don't know if it's still true or not. At one time, that hospital was, I had the record for writing the most violations in any one hospital at a time. And wow. I forget, but it was in the 50s. I stopped, oh, you know, goodness. kind of stuff. Oh, my God. Oh, it was, geez. we actually oh. had a discussion. We had a discussion. They had a smell of decaying dead something in the clinic. Oh. And I said, Seriously, what's going on? And her answer was dead rat in the wall? exactly. Oh, it was. A, right. There's a dead rat in the wall. It'll no, go away. It'll go away. And so, uh, when I look so at gross. all of the great places I get to, when you got to one of those, it was like you set me up. This is where's mm-hmm. the camera? This is a joke, right? <laughs> right. This right, is right. absolutely not happening. Sure. That a, you got to tack bees at the front door. <laughs> Dead rats in the uh, wall, uh, and yet uh, you apply to be an uh, yeah. Uh, we're gonna be awesome. That's crazy, right? Right. Talk about so that falls into the category of of clueless. I guess <laughs> yeah, is what I shut down for a little oh, bit. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Was, so I don't know. That one always. Uh, I, I I still funny. feel the bumps on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. Oh, well, listen, Phil, as we start to wrap up, we get into the last section of the podcast that we call the rapid fire. And uh, this is a couple of questions. All right. Uh, So you ready to go? I'm up for it. Okay. I'm up for it. So, Phil, tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Oh, man, I've had a lot of failures. I think the most epic failure I had recently was the time that I fell down the steps doing a safety inspection at a hospital. Not a pretty sight when the safety inspector hurts themselves doing your safety inspection. <laughs> and Phil, tell me about your proudest moment. I got a lot of them. Most of them center around family, though. I, you know, I, I'm certainly proud of the things that I accomplish in my professional career. I, I was extremely proud of, I have a son. Uh, he's He's a great guy. He's in his thir- He's 30 years old now, but he's an Eagle Scout. He's graduated from college. He, gr- he went to school. He's turned into a, a really decent man. And I think every time I have any, any interaction with him or anybody who does that, I can't help but feel proud about that. So I think it stems more around the family than I do on the personal side. Why veterinary medicine? What do you just love about our profession? Oh, animals. You know, we all got into this because of our love for animals. As I said earlier, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And once I got into the field, I realized what I wanted to be was a nurturer of animals. And so the veterinary technician side of the profession suited me much better than the, than the, uh, the doctor side of things. So it's absolutely, without a doubt, contact with the animals. And that's one of the things that I miss being the consulting in the consulting side now. But I make up for that with all the menagerie of the personal stuff, personal animals. Self-care, how do, you, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? Well, you know, this is important, and I'm glad you asked that one because this is vitally important. It took me years, years to be able to separate and not take problems home with me. So I think self-care is vitally important, and you've got to learn 
to turn it off. Turn off the phone, turn off the computer, turn off the phone, and go do something else. Get a hobby. And I'll tell you, my hobbies today are I love, we live out in the country. I've got, uh, believe it or not, I have four tractors. I don't need one, but I've got four of them. And I just love riding around the field, bush hogging, cutting hay, doing stuff, and riding on my tractor. I can solve the world's problems doing that. And that's, honestly, that's what kind of, I look forward to in a lot of cases. How do you balance work and life, and do you experience any kind of work guilt in that balance? Occasionally I do. Um, What I've learned is, and working from home, you know, I have an office here at the house. It's actually a different building on the property, but I have an office at the same place where I live. In the first number of years, when the office was the dining room, it was extremely difficult to uh, to separate those. So what I've learned is to keep keep regular hours and you know you get up in the morning, you do your household stuff, you make your coffee, you try, you know, do what you got to do, kiss your wife goodbye and go to work. So uh when I'm at work, I'm at work and when the day is over, um we go home. Now there's oftentimes overlaps and but I think maintaining a schedule is the best balance tool that I've ever found. What keeps you up at night? Things that you stress out over, things that cause you anxiety in your consulting business? Probably getting it wrong. You know, when you give folks advice, a lot of folks will act on that advice. Some will ignore you, but most of them will act on that advice. So when I come across a problem that I may not have experienced before, that I've not run into, and I give folks what I consider to be the best advice of the time, I oftentimes second guess myself and I and I spend time going back trying to make sure the advice I gave them is was really good advice because I gave it to them maybe off the cuff, but now I've had the time to do a little bit of research. So I think just, you know, giving leading folks astray is probably the biggest thing that 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 I fear. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? I've always I have always enjoyed what I do and I I enjoy life. I enjoy doing all sorts of stuff. I can't wait to get up. You know, I guess I'm a little bit like the little kid who just refuses to go down for a nap. Now, having said that, I love my afternoon nap every now and then, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know, just the challenges of the day and doing something and achieving something. I love I mean, it could be as simple as mowing the grass out outside, and when you're done, you've accomplished something. It could be, you know, writing a paper. It could be any of that stuff. Cooking a good meal, you know, or any of that. Planning an event. I, I don't know. I've just, I've always had, I, I'm a, I'm a get up and let's get some stuff done kind of guy. So I've always had that. Awesome. Well, listen, Phil, this has been fantastic. Thank you so Thank much you, for Phil. coming on this the show. Was great. Thank you, guys. It has been a pleasure for my first time. I'm excited. So I'm no longer a podcast. Um, I don't know. Can we say that word on the thing? So no now longer you'll a podcast, podcast virgin. Yeah. Yep, yep, <laughs> absolutely. So, so thanks for thanks for getting me into that world and stuff. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I enjoyed, enjoyed doing it. it. I yeah. enjoy doing it. And, good, good. you know, if I can be of help, you know, folks, I don't mind helping. You know, let me know if you need to, need some assistance or something. Shoot me an email. I, I don't mind answering questions at all. Um, be happy to do it. Awesome. Phil, where can our uh, listeners reach you? Besides the safetyvet.com, do you have any other go-tos that you want our listeners to reach out for you if they need help? You know, and it's real easy to remember. It's phil at safetyvet.com is my email address. Easy breezy. That is, yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's your easy button. <laughs> that's yeah. the easiest way in the world. And, All right. Thanks again. Sounds Fantastic. Good. Thanks again. All right. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. 
We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. Social media management and website design by Dog Days Consultant. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.